I love coming because I see all the different people who have different stories and different backgrounds. And one of the things coming to church reminds me of is that redemption changes people. Redemption changes people. Almost every believer's story can be summarized as, I'm not who I once was. Because of the love of Christ, I'm entirely new. I hope that's your story. The church is filled with people who were once stained and scarred by a guilty conscience, but who have been made clean in the blood of Christ. All those old sins, that the way that you have borne that sinful soil in your life, and yet it's been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Husbands who were once selfish, cheated on their wives, slept around, kept all these deep, dark secrets, had addictions, now transformed to become sacrificial servants of their families. Women who have borne secret wounds from past lovers and, and pain and the, the echoes of all these things that people have said about them all their lives, these comparison games that mother used to play, all finding hope and healing in a Redeemer. You see, redemption brings transformation. It's a recreation, a metamorphosis, so to speak, where you go from being something old to being something new. Your old self, including your habits, your desires, your affections, your addictions, the things you once thought were valuable to who you are, are shed off, put away, and something new comes from it. You put on something new. An entirely new identity. The rest of the world is searching for themselves. But in Christ, we have found ourselves because Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is the Son of God who makes us children of God at Golgotha in the cross and in the empty tomb. We find who we are. We are God's children. Once orphans, now as kids. Once widows, now the bride of Christ. You know, we see this strange phenomenon in the New Testament, as Paul tells Christians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. That's 2 Corinthians 5.17. It's amazing. You're a new creation. Like you are, you're an installment of everything that's to come. As the new people of God, as the new creation... We are the new before the new sunrises that come in the new world. We are the new that comes before the new mountains that will be spoken into existence. We are the new creation before there are new deeper oceans, new brighter stars, new animals walking the planet. Before all that new comes, you are the new, the fresh and first installment of everything new to come. I think it's interesting that in some places... Paul speaks of the Christian experience as a change of clothes, right? Changing your clothes. Um, he tells us, put off your old self. Put off, take off, tear off, shed off. That's the, that's the Greek in it. Shed off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he tells us after we've taken off all those old clothes that were to put on, don, the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, Paul tells Christians to do what Rachel tells me after a hard day's work in the backyard. Take off those dirty, old, stinky, nasty clothes, shower up, and be a fresh, clean, smell good husband, right? Paul tells us to take off the old, the stinky the smelly, the stained, the dirty, and to put on the clean clothes. Now, it's interesting that he would describe redemption in this way as a, as a metaphor of changing clothes, right? Because it, it actually fits really well with the whole story of the Bible, because in other redemptive moments, especially in the Old Testament, redemptive moments tend to come with a putting off of old garments and putting on of new ones. Ruth 3 is an example of that in which we find a redemptive garment change. In this brief but important chapter, Ruth sheds off the garments of her widowhood and dons new garments in anticipation of her redemption. She changes clothes. 
And essentially, by the end of the narrative, she becomes a new Ruth. She goes from being Ruth the Moabite and Ruth the widow of Malon to being the soon-to-be, now-engaged, promised-in-waiting bride of Boaz. Amazing transformation. Ruth's pursuit of rest, her change of clothes, the midnight redemption that happens on the threshing floor in which Boaz's wings spread over her, all work together to give a foretaste of what's to come in an even greater redeemer, Jesus Christ, who will one day do the same thing for his bride, the church. In redeeming his bride, and we're going to see this from Ruth chapter 3, I think all scripture is Christocentric, Christotelic meaning that all scripture is ultimately about Jesus. You pick any chapter out of the Old Testament, and it's going to lead you to Jesus. It should, if you're reading it rightly. And in this chapter, when we see Boaz moving and working and promising and giving redemption, we're going to see that there's an even greater redeemer to come who in redeeming his bride will give her new radiant garments, cover her with his redemptive wing, secure her rest, and fill her hands with his eternal kindness forever and ever. The redemption that begins on the threshing floor then, just a small picture, just a small picture of what's come to you. You know, as the people of God who know Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, have a better redemption than Ruth ever dreamt of. You have a better, greater, deeper, more significant, more eternal redemption that Ruth would have never known. Because we have a greater Boaz who redeems us in an even greater way. Now, chapter three opens with Naomi asking her daughter-in-law, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore and anoint yourself and put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and cover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. Now, I think, I think it's kind of goofy. We live in this overly sexualized culture, right, that wants to see sex and everything in the Bible. And most scholars tend to focus on Naomi's hidden motivations. What, she's, what is she doing here for Ruth? She's telling Ruth, hey, I want you to dress up seductively. We're going to win this guy, right? We're going to get him to fall for you. Is that what she's doing? I mean, most, most commentaries that you read, they quibble about her questionable intentions. Some go so far to say that her instructions are suggesting that Ruth goes and undresses Boaz and sleeps with him and forces his hand to redeem her. I think that's so far from the text. It's not even funny. You see, Naomi herself has gone through some kind of transformation in the book of Ruth. She is beginning to understand that redemption just might be taking place. She thought rest was going to wait for Ruth and Orpah in the house of their Moabite husbands. Now she's seeing that rest is actually at the feet of Boaz. Rest is with the Redeemer. After losing her husbands and her sons and believing that there was nothing left, she is beginning to see what must be done. Ruth must go to Boaz. The one through whom God's kindness has not forsaken the living and dead. Rest is with the Redeemer. She must go to the Redeemer. Now, no doubt her plan was incredibly risky. She's sending Ruth out in the dead of night in Judges era Judah. Incredibly dangerous time. Incredibly risky. And could have led to all kinds of scandalous misrepresentations. And yet the plan expresses exactly what it is, a desperation for redemption. As we're going to see in just a moment, Ruth and Boaz, there's, sex could not be further from their minds at this threshing floor. Was that the focus? And if we want to be God's people to see Jesus's redemption, we must keep redemption at the focus. Redemption is the theme of this text all the way throughout. So keep your eyes open for the redemptive notes. First, we find the theme of rest. 
In Ruth, the word rest could refer to security, stability that comes from marriage. In Old Testament passages, though, if you read the rest of the Old Testament, it's also a metaphor for the promised land. Israel enters into God's resting place, the Manoah of God, right? It's God's rest. Both Israel, and I think this is interesting. This is phenomenal to me. Both Israel's redemption and Ruth's redemption and their return from these foreign lands into the promised land inevitably leads to rest, redemption. And the outcome of redemption is the pursuit of rest. Are there any tired people here today? Redemption is securing rest. When God redeems, God's people rest. It's consistent with the entire New Testament and the picture of redemption. When Jesus, the greatest kinsman redeemer of all time, redeems his people, the result is admission into God's rest. Seeing therefore there is still a rest to be entered into. That's Hebrews 4. I mean, you see the amazing picture of Jesus when he says, as the redeemer, our redeemer speaking to us, weary, widowed, Ruth's, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. And so when Naomi speaks of rest, she may very well have marital security in mind, but her words express a faith that Boaz's redemption, as is true of all redemption, will lead to true rest that will take away the weariness of widowhood along with its grief and vulnerability. My friends, you too have a redeemer who brings rest. Can everybody just, I mean, I don't ask for interaction in the sermon a lot. I, I, I want it, but I don't ask for it because it sounds egotistical. But just for a moment, can you guys all just kind of give this big, audible, just sigh of relief? <sighs> we might be going to war with China. Politics are in absolute turmoil. We don't know who the next president's going to be. We don't know the state of the economy. You don't know if there's a cancer growing inside your body. Last night you couldn't sleep because you had a pain on the left side. And yet you have a redeemer who brings you rest. Rest. Still your minds. Let the anxious turmoil cease for just a moment. Jesus silences the storm. Jesus brings sleep to the weary. Rest. Second, Naomi's instructions for Ruth to wash and anoint herself and put her, her cloak, a new cloak on is significant. If you read through the Old Testament, guys, I'm a big fan. You want to know theology? You want to know God? You want to know the Bible? Read, <laughs> okay? No TED Talks are going to be able to help you understand God, okay? There's no Twitter feed that's going to help you understand God. No Facebook Mega church pastor is going to help you to know the Bible better than you picking it up and reading through it. You read through the entire New Testament, Old Testament, and what you find is that every time before a covenantal relationship is established, God's people wash and anoint themselves and change their clothes or some mixture of all three. In Genesis 35, God tells Jacob to go back to Bethel. Jacob gets the hint. He's going to go meet God. What does he do? He washes himself, tells his kids, take a shower, and they change clothes. They change clothes. Why do they do that? That's interesting, isn't it? Why change clothes before meeting God? You see it again in Exodus 19. Moses tells the people that the next day, God's going to literally descend on the mountain. They're going to see the thunder and lightning and fire of God. What's the most appropriate thing for them to do now? Wash yourselves, put on clean clothes. Later in Ezekiel 16, God finds these helpless people, the, the, the people of Israel. He finds Jerusalem waiting in its own blood, wallowing in its own blood, abandoned and helpless, naked and ashamed. 
He sees this infant screaming from pain, bloodied and wounded, and he picks up the infant and he washes it, anoints it, raises it, dresses it in the new clothes, in the new dress, and brings it into a relationship with him. The point is this. When people change clothes in the Bible, it's a big deal. Because it's a symbol that something new is happening. Namely, they are becoming new people. Jacob is not just the cheater that he was. Now he's Jacob, the one who has the promise of God. The one who saw God and lived. The people of Exodus are no longer slaves. At Sinai, they are now the people of God. His firstborn son. Exodus 16, no longer a baby abandoned to wallow in its blood. Now the bride of Yahweh himself. Ruth, no longer a widow, now a bride. Widowhood is over. It is now inappropriate for her to mourn any longer. She's to change her clothes, wash her face. She's to anoint herself. All as symbols that her mourn, she is moving past her mourning and moving toward the Redeemer who will make her an entirely new person. And now we, in an even greater way, are invited to change our clothes. To wear robes of righteousness. To don ourselves in the clothes that Jesus bled to buy for you. I mean, how amazing is it that the old stains that you've been wearing, you don't have to wear the same smelly garment day after day. Slept with a half a million guys? Have the guilt from it? Jesus washes that kind of clothes. Got the guilt of deep, deep level addictions that people don't even know about. Jesus washes those kinds of stains. Have a, have a past that you would just be terrified if anybody found out those particular details about you. Jesus washes it clean. Come, let us consider together, he tells Isaiah. Though the stains on your garment be deep, deep crimson, they will be washed white as snow. My friends, be like Ruth. Wear new clothes. Man, there's just some days, some days as a pastor that I walk around, I'm like, man, you're still wearing those same smelly, sinful gym shorts. The pit stains of depravity are still seen on that dress. Clean your clothes, wash your clothes, change your clothes, live in redemption. Jesus has purchased it. Jesus has bought it. This isn't a message of just, girl, go wash your face. This isn't anything like that. This is a message of Jesus has bought your newness. Therefore, live in it. He has bought the new clothes, the wardrobes hanging in the closet. Put it on, please. The rest of us smell you, and we want you to be, be living free and joyfully. As a sweet-smelling fragrance to the Lord. Put on the new clothes. Man, I never write any of this stuff down. At that. This is, like, pit stains is not found anywhere in here. <laughs> I think when I hang out with people younger than me, then I kind of, you know, it's, it's all y'all's fault there. Okay. <laughs> all right. Ruth agrees to do as her mother-in-law has instructed. She arrives at the threshing floor um, where a full and merry Boaz. Boaz has, has harvested, he's eaten, he's drank his wine, he's quite content. He's got this full, bloated, gluten-filled belly, and he lies down at the, heap of, at the heap of grain. Verse 7 says, she came softly or secretly, as the Hebrew says, and uncovered his feet and lay down. Once again, many modern readings attempt to attach some kind of sexual connotation to this. And they, and they argue that the word uncover is used in other biblical passages, meaning to unclo- uncover one's clothing. That seems like a bit of a jump to me, I'll just be honest. Um, when somebody asks me to take off my shoes, I don't think they're making a pass at me. <laughs> just because take off your shoes and take off your clothes share the same verb doesn't mean that there's a shared sexual connotation there. I think literally what she does is she finds a sleeping Boaz who has covered himself up with his cloak like a blanket. 
And she takes his blanket and she removes it off of him. Now he's cold. Right? I experience this every night at 2 a.m. <laughs> when the wife whom I love uncovers my blanket. And I wake up shivering at midnight, just like Boaz did. Now, what, what's significant about the, the cloak that she removes from his legs? First off, again, just want to completely denounce that this is anything kind of sexual. Ruth is declared a worthy woman, and Boaz is declared to be a worthy man. And if they do anything of the kind that even remotely smacks of sexuality here, they've broken God's law. We can't call them worthy people. The other thing is this. Boaz has a deep, deep concern to do things the right way. Even so far that he, he wants to marry Ruth. And for us as modern people, we're like, who in the world should stop them, right? But Boaz knows that there's a nearer redeemer and he's got to go talk to the nearer redeemer first. He's got to deal with it first and then he can marry Ruth. So again, there's no sidetracking. There's no jumping over a fence. There's no short, uh, short tracking anything. Boaz wants to do everything the right way. But there's something unique about laying his cloak to the side of him. In the ancient world, a man's robe, his cloak, was, you know, they, they wore a tunic, right? And then the, over that, they had a little cloak, like a cape almost, you know? Um, and that cape was significant. And, and in the ancient world, whenever a man saw a woman, they would symbolic that he wanted to marry, by the way, not just any lady. Um, he would go over to her and he would spread his cloak, which looked symbolically like a wing. It was called a wing. He would spread the corner over it over the woman that he wanted to marry. That was a symbol that he, like an eagle, was going to bring her under his wing, cover her, protect her, provide for her, love her, clothe her, care for her in every sense of the term. And so that, that was what it was called. When a man engaged, was engaged with a woman, he was covering her with his wing, covering her with his cloak. We see the same thing in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. Yahweh speaks as a husband to his bride. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age of love, and I spread the corner of my garment, or my kanaf, my wing, over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow, okay, that is a wedding term, made my vow to you, and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. How beautiful is that? Where you get this man who covers his bride with his wing, a man covering his bride in such a way was just a symbol of he was going to be he was going to be her lead servant he was the one that was going to serve her love her care for her nourish her this tender moment of my wing will cover you now essentially what ruth is doing is she's taking this symbol that symbolizes marriage and she sets it next to him Okay, if you have a fiance and you happen to be taking a nap on the couch and she lays an engagement ring on the coffee table, she's hinting about something, right? That's essentially what Ruth does. When he shivers awake and sees his cloak beside him and sees Ruth lying at his feet, it's absolutely clear what's happening here. Ruth is pursuing marriage. She wants Boaz as her husband. She needs redemption. She needs the rest that he can bring. So that's what she does. She signals to him why she's there. Puts the engagement ring next to him. Well, at midnight, the man was startled. Now, the actual Hebrew word means he shivered, okay? I don't know if you've been to the Judean desert, but if you go anywhere near Bethlehem at night, it's freezing cold, okay? It's cold. This man doesn't have a blanket anymore, and like every other woman does, Ruth has taken it from him. I might get in trouble for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but he's cold, so he shivers awake. I, Rachel, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> at midnight, the man shivers awake. He turns over, and behold, a woman is lying at his feet. Once again, the author's connecting Ruth's redemption with all the other great redemptions of history. When does redemption happen? At midnight. Of course. In Acts chapter 12, you'll find that the Passover happened at midnight. If you go to Psalm chapter uh, 119, verses 61 and 62, you hear the psalmist say this, though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. 
Midnight's the hour of redemption. And so it's no surprise that we find Boaz waking up at midnight, and this is when the redemption begins. Redemption begins. And it's so amazing. When Ruth started that night, she was Ruth the widow. As she comes to the threshing floor, she's still Ruth the Moabite widow. But at midnight, her future husband awakes. And redemption can begin. He asks the question, who are you? Again, no lights. There's no street lights. There's no, I mean, that's a valid question to ask, okay? You want to know who you're talking to. You don't want this whole Jacob and Leah situation once again, okay? Who are you? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. By asking him to spread his wings over her, Ruth alludes to Boaz's initial blessing in Ruth chapter, 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 12. You remember, when Boaz first met Ruth, he said, May you be blessed by Yahweh, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. She's basically telling Boaz, Hey, you said it. Now make good on it. You said Yahweh's wings would cover over me. It just so happens that his wings are going to cover over, you, over me through you when you spread your wings over me. The point is, is that by acting as her redeemer, Ruth will be enacting God's redemption in her life. His robe will be, an, will be a visible representation of an even greater invisible robe that will completely cover and envelop her. Now, he's moved by Ruth's request. We don't know the age difference between Ruth and Boaz. It, it could have been, but we, we think it was quite significant, right? Um, maybe a 20-year gap, maybe. We don't know. Um, maybe the man was in his 50s, and, the, and Ruth here is in her early 30s, give or take. We know some people in our church like that. Um, just kidding. Um, but the reality is, is that there's an age gap. And, and what's unique about it is, is Ruth here completely sacrifices her own preferences. Boaz points it out. She could have gone after younger guys. There's more eligible bachelors in Bethlehem. There's probably strong studs in the field next door that are wealthy and rich. And she could have easily gone to them and asking for redemption. But here's the problem. There's no other man in Bethlehem who can guarantee the redemption of Naomi as well. Do you see why this is a greater act of kindness than the first? The first act of kindness, she tells Naomi, your people will be my people, your God, my God, and, and God do more to me if anything but death separates me from you. That was a great act of kindness. She's basically swearing to Naomi that she will live with her, that she will be with her, that she will never be alone. Now Ruth lays her future on the altar and says, I will not marry just any man. I will marry the man who will also redeem my mother-in-law, who will take her in, provide for her. Now, how many of you, again, just bringing it to our modern day, you ask your fiance to marry you, and she says, only on the condition that my mother-in-law can move in, my mother can move in. Not many of us moderns would be like, we'd be more like, well, hold on now. <laughs> Can we talk about this? We don't have the mother, money for an in-law suite in the back. But Ruth wants nothing less. It, it must mean Naomi's redemption as well. If she is to be married, the man must have her and her mother-in-law in mind. And that's why he says, this last kindness is greater than the first, because you have not only stuck it out with your mother-in-law, but you have ensured that your mother-in-law will find redemption through your marriage as well. My friends, how many of us would be willing to condescend in such a way that we no longer look out just for our own good, but we look out for the good of others? To where we no longer just have our preference? Well, I know what I want. Well, of course we know what we want. But do we know what others need? Do we act in such a way that puts our wants and our preferences and our desires on the altar for the sake of what others need? We hear a lot of talk of Freedoms and rights and all these things. Ruth uses her freedom to make sure that Naomi is redeemed. She has freedom to marry anyone and leave Naomi in the dust. But she doesn't do that. She shows kindness with her rights. Kindness with her freedom. 
kindness that makes sure that others find what they need as well. Then come the sweet, comforting words. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman, even as a Moabite and as a foreigner. The people of Bethlehem know that she is a woman of quality and character. Now, you don't see this in the English text. It's kind of hidden from us in translation a little bit. But when he calls her a worthy woman, that actually means she's an excellent woman. The word for woman and wife are the same Hebrew word. So all the townspeople know that you would make an excellent wife. What does that sound like? Sounds like Proverbs 31, doesn't it? Boaz is hinting at this. He's like, an excellent wife who can find? She's right there in front of him on the threshing floor. This is a woman whose actions teach kindness. This is a woman who labors and works so that others can have their needs met. He sees this and of course, Of course he will seek to marry her, but there's a problem. There's another guy in the picture. Isn't that just like a Hallmark movie, right? (laughs) There's another guy in the picture. He recognizes this and wants her to become his bride, but there's a significant barrier they have to cross first, a nearer redeemer. There's some other guy who has first claim to Elimelech's property and to Ruth's hand in marriage. Now, you might be asking as a modern reader, why in the world would anyone be able to stop them if they want to get married? We live in the day that we marry who we want to marry. Well, marriage didn't always work the way it does today. You've got to remember that the, the redemption law, the Leverett law, were, they, they were rigid in several ways, but their heart was to ensure that mercy and justice would happen, that no one would be left out on the streets that no widow would be left to fend for herself. So the main concern is ensuring here that Ruth finds a home and that Elimelech's inheritance is then inherited by one of his descendants. Second, it's worth asking this. How could we possibly see true love if there's no obstacle to prove that it is indeed true love? This is, my, this is my beef with a lot of the romance stories that uh, the ladies listen to. There's just no challenge, right? I mean, if they could merge Hallmark and Die Hard together, right? I mean, here's a guy who's willing to blow up things to go be with his bride. Here's a guy who's willing to, like, take down an entire army, to go be with his bride. I mean, that's, that's what Boaz essentially does. There's no obstacle too big for him to cross for Ruth. There's another guy. That's a problem. This other guy might get his feelings hurt if Boaz asks him to step aside. That's a problem. This other guy has probably known about Ruth and has done nothing. That's a problem. But Boaz doesn't step back and shy away and say, uh, there's a problem. I can't go through it. No, like every true hero does, he jumps the fence, crosses the ocean, goes over the chasm, climbs the mountain, climbs the tower, and slays the dragon. Because he really does love her. My friends, we have a knightly hero who has slain a dragon for us. Who has stepped on the head of a snake, crushed it. Who has gone into the dark tomb in death. Who has climbed up the hill of Golgotha, been nailed to a cross. We have a knightly hero who's done far more than Boaz could ever do. Boaz tells Ruth, remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. In other words, Boaz promises that Ruth will be redeemed no matter what. Either this dude's going to do it or I'm going to do it. But you will be redeemed by the end of the day. And then in verse 14, it says, so she lay at his feet until morning. In other words, she lay down and guess what she did? She slept. Can you imagine? I just, I just want to, I want to draw your eyes to this detail for a second. Can you imagine how sweet this night of sleep would have been compared to all the nights before? I mean, Ruth has been a widow. Ruth is a foreigner. She has been displaced. 
The people of Judah technically hate her as a enemy of the people of God. She's lost home and husband. She's suffered the sorrow of widowhood. She lives in absolute uncertainty. Can you imagine going to bed night after night after night after night, not knowing if the next day you'll have enough food to eat? Can you imagine going to bed night after night? How many, how many people would lose sleep not knowing who would protect them and provide for them and care for them? And now for the first night in a long time, Ruth can close her eyes knowing that in the morning, redemption will come. In the morning, she will be redeemed. So here she is, closing her eyes with the promise of Boaz that she will be redeemed the very next day. I can just imagine how great that night of sleep would have been, even if it was on the ground. How great it would have just been to rest in that. My friends, as I said before, redemption leads to rest. Ruth could have said these words. My redeemer makes me lie down on the smooth threshing floor. That sound familiar to anybody? Anybody here just say sudden ring of resonance in that? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me what? Lie down. Now that, that may not be that impressive of a detail to you that the Lord makes us lie down, but for some reason, David and Ruth saw that as incredibly good news and you should too. There's many of us in here that have watched the news that have been a part of the events that are going on in the world. We have seen all the scary moments. We felt that pain in the left side, wondering what in the world that is. Is that the next big tumor, the scare? We have, we have gone to sleep, at, we have tried to go to sleep at night, and yet because of everything going on in the world, we have been rendered complete insomniacs. You can tell it in your eyes. Bloodshot, heavy laden, black rings around them. Is there anyone that would ever confess that in 2020 and 2021, they lost just a little bit of sleep over all that? We live in uncertain times. Just any, any moment that you, I, I just, I was in, I was somewhere with a TV the other day and I don't watch much TV at home. I read books. I have a high anxiety life as a pastor and a father of four kids anyway. I mean, the threat of war comes anytime my kids run into each other. So I don't, I don't need to read about it in the news. But I was sitting somewhere and I was watching the news and just five minutes. <laughs> like they were going through the top five stories. They do that nowadays. I feel like they're like playing a game to show you how quick they can, you know, make you anxious. Right? It's almost like they, out of all the top five things they could have picked to give you a daily, a morning rundown, they like pick the worst. Right? Like, at least at number three, tell me about the new donut shop that's opening or something. But no, you got to tell me about the new nuclear threat and the new Delta variant. You got to tell me about the war with China and all these political things and the barrier at the one. You got to tell me these top five. And I'm like, there goes my piece, right? Has anybody else felt that? I mean, my goodness, it's in five minutes. And then, and then the anxiety, the heart starts pumping. You start thinking about what's your future for your kids. Like, what kind of world is, uh, what kind of world is Timothy Jackson going to graduate from 10 years from now? If he lives to graduate, right? Yeah. What kind of world will he be raising? What kind of world is my daughter going to go out to? I mean, my goodness, there are wolves out there. It's, it's at those moments right before night, as a husband, as a father, and as a pastor. You guys, you guys realize, just as a confession, and I, I hope you realize this by now. I am no more superior in my faith than you. If anything, I've worried more than most of you have. When COVID hit, I wasn't worried about myself. I was worried about what the disease might do to my kids and to my pregnant wife. When COVID hit, my wife was months pregnant. I had images at night of what might happen to her. 
When the economy started to tank, and I had brothers all over the country saying that they were closing the doors to their church because people were fighting, and there was such a bad church split. I had images at night that I would come in on Sunday to empty churches. People fighting. I might lose my job. My income might be completely imploded. There are times that allergy season would hit and I'd start to breathe and I'd feel it in my lungs and think, am I the one that's going to die next? My friends, don't be prideful. We all know you've been there. We all know you've been there. It's in those moments when the darkness seems to keep your eyes awake that you hear the echo of God's promises ringing from the deeps. My wing covers you. You hear your Redeemer who has spread his wing over you, covered you, who tells you, lie down at my feet until morning. He makes us to lie down. He gives us sleep. Fear of the future, anxiety be about what's to come. None of that is strong enough for his redemption. Our redeemer has spoken. And as Boaz said in the best way possible, as the Lord lives, after darkness, redemption comes. post lux, as the old reformers used to say, after darkness, light. In the morning, there's Redemption. So what then? What then? Knowing that despite all this deep darkness, and it can get a lot worse. Despite all of that, we still have the promise of eternal life at the table of Jesus in the presence of God to receive his everlasting overflow of kindness forever and ever, not just as friends of the family, but as sons and daughters of the king. What then? Go to sleep. Those who trust their Redeemer sleep best. It's amazing. When David was on the run from Absalom, he run, he's on the run. He's homeless. There's people that are trying to kill him. His own son wants him dead. And one of the crazy details that we read about in 2 Samuel is David makes a cot for himself on the ground and goes to sleep. David, what are you doing, you crazy guy? You've got like assassins out after you. There's people who are literally trying to hunt you and behead you and bring your head back to your son, Absalom. Why sleep? There was no better time to sleep. He could sleep because he trusted in his Redeemer. My friends, now is the perfect time to get some sleep. It's a, it's a very practical application If you're not sleeping well, and it's not a chemical problem or a health problem, if you're not sleeping well because of anxiety, it's a faith problem. Get some sleep. Trust in the Redeemer. Lie down at his feet until morning. Know that redemption comes with the dawn. It'll do you a whole lot better than melatonin. Address the fear of the hearts. Get the sleep. There's still all kinds of questions. How is Boaz actually going to do this? Where is redemption actually going to come from? What if Boaz dies in his sleep? I mean, he's an older guy, right? Ruth could go to sleep because she trusted that Boaz would do as he said he would do. Now, my friends, do you sleep and trust that your Redeemer will do as he said? Or do you stay awake and fear and tremble? God's wings cover you and over all who are his. He does not need your help. So Ruth sleeps. I think, what a great, just a little prefigure of rest in that. Ruth and Boaz rise just before morning light dawns. And there's no real reason to believe that the two did anything illicit. But still, Boaz is making sure that he protects her reputation as a worthy woman. He doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about what happened the night before. So they get up together before the the dawn comes. But before she leaves, he tells her to spread out that new garment that she's put on, to spread it out. And he scoops 
barley grain into it. It's like 80 pounds worth of grain. Like six measures would have been like 80 pounds, okay? Now, I don't know about you, but I'm impressed by Ruth to be able to haul 80 pounds back home, okay? But his gift is doing more than just giving her her next meal. His gift is anticipating something that's to come from the redemption that he's going to work out that very day. It serves as kind of a down payment, you see, of of what he's about to do. Namely, his redemptive work is going to reverse everything. Ruth is no longer going to be barren. She's going to be pregnant. Naomi's no longer going to be empty. Her hands are going to be full with this baby that Boaz will give to Ruth. I don't want to draw too many big pictures here, but scholars seem to agree that when she held out her garment, she held it out like this, which symbolizes a big pregnant belly. It's a, it's a picture that's a, more seed. Boaz's seed is still to come. And the barren one will soon be a mother. The one who has no children will soon be fruitful. And even more than that, the one who is empty-handed will be empty-handed no longer. He, he makes it intentional in verse 17 when he tells her, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Why? It was Naomi who was the one that said she went away full and the Lord brought her back empty-handed. And now Boaz sends back a full-handed Ruth to show Naomi, you're not going to be empty anymore. All this because of the Redeemer. And I think once again, we're invited to consider the great reversal that Jesus brings. According to Luke, God has filled the hungry with good things. What does hungry mean? Spiritual hungry, physically hungry, psychologically hungry, emotionally hungry. What is it? Yes, hungry, filled. Whatever hunger you have, Jesus satisfies the hunger. He fills it. Empty, no more. He heals the wounded. He loves the unlovable. Those of you who felt like you've never truly had anyone that really loved you, Jesus fills that void. Those of you who are out searching for your identity, Jesus steps in and says, find it in me. Those of you who are tired, he gives rest. And he brings the lonely into a family. Because of his death, he even reverses death. He transforms us from those who are dead enemies of God into the vibrant and living and colorful sons and daughters of the Most High. Those who once dwelt in the darkness are now brought into the light. Because of his resurrection, we can know that even one day our own grave will be robbed of its victim. The graves of your loved ones will be empty. You might feel as if your hands are empty now because of those that you lost. How amazing is it to know that because of Christ's resurrection and because of the empty tomb, that one day the grave will be empty and your arms full again. Jesus is bringing about a great reversal. The gospel, of tr- the gospel truth of Christ crucified and resurrected reminds us that God is co- accomplishing a great reversal through redemption. Now, before we end our time together, Ruth 3 ends with Naomi telling Ruth, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Now, at this point in the narrative, the question remains, how is Boaz going to do this? We don't know that until Ruth chapter 4. So for now, Ruth must watch and wait. For us, however, there's no real waiting for how the Redeemer is going to redeem us. There's no question about it. We already know. Do you realize that? We're not Ruth waiting at mom-in-law's house, waiting to find out how the Redeemer is going to accomplish our redemption. It is finished. Jesus himself said it was. Transaction has been made. We are his bride. We are his people. It is done. Nothing else. Now, yes, we're waiting for benefits. Yes, we're waiting to be brought into the house. But we're just simply the people who God has promised to give us to his son as a bride. Now we're waiting for the wedding day. Now we're waiting for the wedding. Do you realize all of this crud? Because I can't say other words up in here. All this crud that we're facing is working up to the marriage feast of the lamb. So then what? What do we do? My friends... What did you do moments before your wedding? I hope you got ready. 
We got married at what time in the day, Dad? Uh, my, my, my wife and I, it was like 10 a.m., 11 a.m., something like that, whatever it was. Whatever it was, we knew that it was a bad time because people were complaining about lunch. But my wife was up at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. She had her hair appointment at 4.30. She had a makeup appointment. She, my wife doesn't need makeup, but, but my goodness, it was, she was gorgeous. Never seen a more radiant face in all my life. She starts putting on the dress about an hour and a half before, maybe two hours before. I mean, like six hours of preparation or something like that. All waiting for that moment when she would walk down the aisle and I would see her and she would see me and we would hold hands and say, I do. And never again would we part except for death. My friends, we're in those moments. We're in the pregame of the wedding. Church, get your hair done. Get rid of the pimples. Take off the PJs and put on the dress. Seriously, the wedding's coming. Are you ready for the bridegroom? I mean, all the Bible, all the New Testament, you read it. it, it it's, Jesus has one thing on his mind, the time that he's going to see his bride. And in Revelation 19.7, it talks about the bride who has made herself ready, clothed with fine linen, which is their righteous deeds, bright and pure. When Jesus comes back, he deserves a bride who's filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control and all the things that make us pretty. And yet we still have the ugliness of idolatry and the sleep boogers of sin. The pit-stained sh- uh, shirts of Gossip. Friends, make yourself ready. Jesus, your greater Boaz, has promised to marry you. Get ready for the wedding day. Repent and obey. And make yourself a bride ready for her bridegroom. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that people today will take off the old garments and put on the new ones. I pray that we, like Ruth, will come in anticipation to you and your son, knowing that he, Jesus Christ, is our bridegroom. Help us, Father, to take off the old self, put on the new self, to put, take off the old dress, to put on new garments, and to enjoy the fruit of redemption. I pray for anyone in here that is asking how they could ever be loved. I pray for anyone in here that is looking for significance and value. I pray for anyone in here that feels like they've been forgotten and left behind by the world, that they will come to Jesus, the true and greater Boaz, who vows as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.